Father, we lament our cold, lifeless, dead prayers. Their utter feebleness adds sin to sin. If our hope were in them, we would be undone. But the work of Jesus perfumes our frail breathings. Jesus, perfecter of our prayers, sanctifier of our souls, would you please deepen our repentance of sin? Holy Spirit, revealer of all truth, make the book live. Make the truth dance. Feed our anemic souls. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Jesus Christ invaded time and space by clothing himself in human flesh. He came to redeem a people for his name, a church. He came to die. To die for the sins of his people. To die for the church he created. <laughs> Shackled and standing before 71 men, Jesus accepted the title, Son of God. It infuriated the religious elite. They wanted to put Christ to death. The frenzied mob took Jesus to a, to a second court. <laughs> he must die. The courts agreed. Jesus was stripped of his clothes. Naked, he would be draped over a low post and tied by his hands. While in this position, two burly Roman soldiers, one on his left and one on his right, would alternate lashings. The short-handed whip contained many leather straps with broken glass and pottery sewn into the ends. As the leather straps were thrown, the ends would spread and the hooks would sink deeply into his flesh before they ripped it back. This whip would open up the back. History records scourging as being called the halfway death. In fact, quite often the criminal would not survive the scourging. If they did, their muscles were shredded and their organs exposed. Josephus said it was not uncommon to see a rib come flying out of the person's body. Jesus would not have looked human anymore. He would have looked like a bloodied animal or just a pile of raw meat. Jesus said he was king, so they put a purple robe on him to mock royal attire. They created a crown made of thorns. It hurt, but the crown of thorns was not meant primarily as a form of torture, but a form of mockery. The physical pain Jesus endured was heard of. The mockery Jesus endured was unheard of. I call it the parody of the cross because such mockery was not an ordinarily, ordinary part of the crucifixion event. They brought 600 soldiers, a battalion, to play in this comedy. Linsky says, this is so exceptional that nothing like it has ever been found. 
They blindfolded and punched him saying, prophesy, which one hits you? That was mocking him as a prophet. They mocked him as a, as a king with the purple robe. They forced Jesus to carry his own cross. The cross beam, at least. The cross beam was hollowed out in the center and then slipped over the vertical beam. What Jesus carried weighed anywhere from 100 to 200 pounds. The condemned person generally had to carry the cross beam behind the nap of the neck. Jesus needed to go three football fields in distance. And he wasn't wearing work boots. He was shoeless. His feet bleeding. Eventually, he just collapsed under the load. The authorities forced another man to carry the cross to the place of crucifixion. But that man could not carry the sins of the world. Only Jesus could carry that. They slipped the cross beam onto the vertical beam and threw Jesus on it. They drove something like railroad spikes into each of his hands and then one into his bloody feet. His feet are now bloody and bludgeoned. They dropped the cross into the ground. The height of crosses varied. The high cross seems to have been used when they wanted to make the victim visible. We know Jesus had a high cross because they offered him a drink extended on a pole. Jesus hangs on a cross. Hanging between heaven and earth. Hanging between God and man. His eyes, dull. Jesus' eyes lost their luster. They were dying eyes, grayed out. Weak eyes producing blurred vision. No power in his eyes. No power in his feet. He's a, he's a savior with weak eyes and weak feet. It will not be long now. His body will stop twitching. His eyes will close. He will die. His followers will scatter. All hope is lost. <laughs> well, for three days. We know the end of the story. Jesus resurrects from the dead. He stays on earth 40 days in his resurrected body before ascending to heaven in the sight of all of his followers. 50 to 60 years after all of this, the resurrected Jesus Christ appears to John with instructions. I want you to write seven letters to seven churches. John pulls out the quill, dips it in ink and says, I'm ready. John first wrote to the church in Ephesus. By my count, they were doing nine things right and one thing wrong. I call them the heady church. They possessed the ability to work through complex theological issues. Jesus commended them for loving him with their minds, but rebuked them for not loving him with their hearts. 
Jesus says, I will settle for nothing less than your head and your heart. They were cranial, but not cardiological. They were big-headed, but not big-hearted. They loved theology and loved doctrine, but did not love God and love neighbor. They had no agape. That's the Greek word for love. Jesus says, You're in a, where is the agape? You're an agape-less church. Jesus did not want them to stop being a heady church. He wanted them to be a heady and a hearty church. Keep your informed mind and regain an inflamed heart. Jesus is writing to churches along the most common postal route, which went up the coast first and then inland. So he writes to Ephesus, then he writes to Smyrna. Smyrna is 35 miles away. I call Smyrna the persecuted church. Jesus typically commands and then corrects these churches, but not here. Jesus doesn't mention one negative critique to this church. He does not tell them to repent like he did to Ephesus. Jesus wants the persecuted church to be more afraid of displeasing him than dying. And they were. Fear not and be faithful unto death. Young Polycarp sitting in the pew said, mm, words to die by. Next, Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum, or sometimes called Pergamos, that's 70 miles from Smyrna. I call Pergamos the compromising church. Remember that from last week? Antipas was a member of this church. He was martyred by being slow roasted in a brass bowl. This church faced persecution and they did not compromise. But this church faced idolatry and they did compromise. This church faced immorality and they did compromise. Recant Christ or be slow roasted? They didn't budge. Assimilate to the wicked practices of your culture? They budged. Take on the morality of Pergamum? They budged. Satan doesn't care how you compromise as long as you compromise. This church withstood the frontal assault of Satan, persecution, but they let him in through the back door. They gave in to the religious and social norms of the culture. Satan doesn't need to slow roast you if he can get you to assimilate into the wicked practices of the culture. Jesus writes to the heady church in Ephesus, then 35 miles away to the persecuted church in Smyrna, then 70 miles away to the compromising church in Pergamos. Finally, 40 miles away to Thyatira, the tolerant church. Jesus writes his longest letter to them. This is the middle letter, the center of the seven. Jesus keeps his pattern. He first commends, then he corrects. We saw Christ reveal himself to the heady church in a unique way. We saw Christ reveal himself to the persecuted church in a unique way. We saw Christ reveal himself to the compromising church in a unique way. Now, how is this Christ going to reveal himself to the tolerant church? He will reveal himself this way. As the intolerant Christ and the rewarding Christ. 
The intolerant Christ, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. The rewarding Christ, Revelation chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. This church needs to see a certain aspect of Jesus' character. It's what they all needed. The weaknesses in these churches can be traced back to a faulty or incomplete view of their Christ. Jesus writes each church to correct something. And he does it by revealing aspects of his character. We shall discover the intolerant Christ and the rewarding Christ. And then we will all go home with four applications. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God. Let's stop there. Thyatira was a city filled with union workers and unions. They called them trade guilds. They had a guild for nearly every trade. Metal workers, bakers, tanners, potters, linen workers, wool merchants, shoemakers, coppersmiths, tanners, bakers, fish dealers. Thyatira was a blue-collar town. They put on hard hats and worked overtime. These trade guilds, these workers in the same industry, Form these little clubs or, or unions or guilds. Each guild was dedicated to a patron god. They held special banquets in honor of that god. They sacrificed meat to that god and then they all ate it. If their business prospered, it was their god who was given the credit. If their trade took a hit, they wondered if someone in the guild stopped honoring the god. Guilds were the heart of the city. This made it very difficult for any Christian to make a living without belonging to a guild. Because membership involved attendance to guild banquets and to opt out would be professional suicide. If, if, if you got kicked out of a guild, you would lose your customers, lose your 401k, lose your home, lose your ability to make a living. We only know one person ever from this city. That was Lydia. When Paul started the first church in Europe at Philippi, his first convert was a woman named Lydia from Thyatira. She dealt in expensive clothing. She had a place in Philippi and a place in Thyatira. Before coming to Christ, she must have led the fabric dyeing guild. She dealt in purple dye. Having the ability to sell fine linen that had been dyed purple was like owning a, a microchip patent for computers. The purple dye was obtained from the secretion of shellfish. Approximately 8,000 shellfish were required to produce one gram of purple dye. So purple fabric was the lexus of clothing. It was literally worth more than its weight in gold. Purple garments were worn by the emperors. Private citizens wore splashes of purple as proof of their wealth. But let's make the connection. This church knows that 50 or 60 years ago, the Roman soldiers threw splashes of purple on Jesus to mock him who claimed to be king. They had all heard first-hand accounts of Christ's crucifixion. Some were just teens when it happened. We now have a king wearing his everlasting purple robe riding to a city 
who produces purple robes. Jesus identifies himself to this church as the son of God. The very term that angered the religious elite. Jesus did not become the son of God when he came to earth. He is and always has been the son of God. He is the son who was never born. God didn't speak the son of God into existence like he did the moon and the stars. The son always was. He was the son before he was an infant. I think Jesus is using this title, Son of God, polemically. Roman emperors characteristically introduced themselves this way. I'm the Son of God. This is the only time Son of God is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Jesus does this because he will quote Psalm 2 later, which speaks of God's Son. Let's pick up verse 18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says, my eyes are not what they were 50 or 60 years ago. They are not dull. They are not dying. They are not gray. They are blazing. They are a flame of fire. They lack no luster. I have forensic eyes with penetrating power. They are laser-like. My gaze pierces every false thing about you. I know the truth despite misleading appearances. Also, my feet are not bloody and bludgeoned anymore. My feet glow. I don't have weak feet. I have strong feet that crush enemies. It's interesting, Jesus chooses to reveal himself to this church in this way because Thyatira had a unique guild that made a special kind of bronze. It was military-grade bronze. Jesus says, I have military feet, and I can crush and defeat. There was a time when I had no power in my eyes, no power in my feet, but I am not the crucified Christ anymore. I am the all-powerful enthroned Christ. Strong eyes and strong feet. Verse 19. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, Jesus says, church, I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. You have busy hands working for my local church. And you're not like Ephesus. You love well. You love me well. You love neighbor well. Your service and perseverance, it's all very impressive. You could call this church the Agape Church. A church you walked into and immediately you just feel at home. They're loving They're friendly. They're welcoming. In fact, Thyatira, you're more loving now than when you first began. You've not fallen off a bit. You get better every day. That's all good. Until verse 20. But I have this against you. 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, Jezebel was in the Old Testament. <laughs> if Jesus is referring to that Jezebel, she's over 900 years old now. I don't think Jesus is talking about the actual Old Testament Jezebel. He's characterizing another woman in this church by calling her Jezebel. I've never met a woman named Jezebel. I've never met a, a man named Judas. There's just something about those names that signal negativity. Calling someone Benedict Arnold reveals their character. So calling this woman Jezebel reveals her character. This woman, whoever she was, is doing the same thing in the church that Jezebel was doing in Israel over 900 years ago. She is a prototype of the Old Testament Jezebel. She's the second Jezebel. That's not her literal name. She's Jezebel-like. It's a pseudonym. There is a parallel between her behavior in the church and the behavior of Jezebel in Israel. Before we can fully understand the modern Jezebel, we need to know something about the ancient Jezebel. She's in a long story covered in 1st and 2nd Kings. Jezebel was a pagan princess of a heathen king. She is described as incredibly beautiful. She used her sexual prowess to get her way. <laughs> Even when she was old, she dressed herself up, put on eyeliner, and went out to seduce a king and his men who were trying to kill her. It's said that the only one on the king's side after seeing her were the eunuchs, who of course were castrated. She was incredibly beautiful, but also incredibly wicked. Heads rolled when she was in charge, mostly heads of God's prophets. She tried to eradicate the followers of Yahweh. Israel's king, Ahab, married this pagan woman and she brought him and Israel into idolatry. She basically started her own seminary, bringing in 400 prophets of Baal. 2 Kings 9 tells us she was adulterous in her worship of Baal. She successfully combined worship and immorality. Ahab was a weak man. She was an overbearing woman. She flexed on him and he cowered. So she really had political authority, religious authority, and financial authority. God ended up judging her. She was pushed out of a window, trampled by horses, and eaten by dogs. It's a heartwarming story. Check it out tonight in your family devotions. That's the ancient Jezebel. Jesus only mentions her name. This church knew their Old Testaments. So these stories started flooding their minds when they heard the name Jezebel. Jesus doesn't bother describing the ancient Jezebel, but he spends quite a bit of time describing the modern Jezebel. Let's see his description again in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed 
to idols. This modern Jezebel may have, think about this, may have been in the service as this letter was being read. I wonder if people just started looking at her. And all the people in her weekly Bible study, I wonder if they just started sliding down the pew. Is this sexist? Is this sexist that Jesus is calling a woman Jezebel? Kyle, I'm just uncomfortable with what Jesus says here. I wouldn't want my pastor to call anyone a Jezebel, and I wouldn't want my Savior to do that either. (laughs) Are you so PC you're not even biblical anymore? The creator of the universe calls us what he pleases. He reads us like an open book with his eyes of fire. He sees us and modern Jezebel with crystal clear clarity. Modern Jezebel was the most outgoing person in the church. She was extremely talented, a gifted speaker. She had passion and personality and creativity and humor. She was like a Christian celebrity. Church, you need to guard against the cult of personality. She called herself a prophetess. She's claiming new revelation, a direct message from God. She has a word for the church. She calls herself a prophetess, and she's not. Fakes cannot deceive the one with eyes like a flame of fire. By the way, beware of anyone who says you didn't get what you needed at salvation. She called herself a prophetess, And she is teaching. What is she teaching? Well, the Bible, but distorting it. And people, but misinforming them. This special revelation qualifies her to teach in the church. If anyone ever questions her, she has the trump card. I heard it from Jesus. She's seizing authority in the church. Did she not read 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus? The pastoral epistles? They were circulating through the churches at this time. Who was her husband? Why wasn't he stepping in? Her, Her teaching is seducing people in the church to do what? To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. She is evidently claiming that Jesus personally appeared to her and said, it's okay to participate in these activities. She's saying, you can be in the guilds and still be faithful. You can sacrifice meat to false gods and then eat it. It's okay. She made her teaching less offensive, less countercultural, more tolerable. And Jesus' servants are eating it up. It is possible for Christians to get caught up for a time in bad theology. These aren't her servants. They are his servants. Christians. She's encouraging involvement in pagan celebrations that inevitably degenerated into debauchery. 
Apparently, these guild banquets turns into, they turned into swingers clubs. She's drawing people away from Jesus by saying, it's okay. Go ahead. She's divorced Christianity from morality. It's okay to live with that dichotomy. That's what she's convinced them of. Now, one of my favorite Canadian theologians, D.A. Carson, does not believe this woman did physical idolatry with people in the church, but that her teaching was spiritual, that, that she didn't do physical adultery with people in the church, but that her teaching was spiritual adultery. It's a, it's a teaching issue in his mind. I, I think it's both and. She spent a lot of time in the classroom and a lot of time in the bedroom. Sin never goes without a companion. For the devil's hounds always hunt in twos. And have we not seen it in these churches? Bad theology leads to bad morals. And the reverse is true as well. Bad morals leads to bad theology. Jesus asks this local church, why are you tolerating this? The Greek word tolerate means to allow room to operate, to go unrestrained. How can you tolerate someone who is attempting to destroy what I died to accomplish? They tolerated flagrant immorality, heretical teaching. It became so normal at that church that there is no longer outrage over it. They're not maintaining sound doctrine. The church is a place where the truth is preserved. Why? Why did you take her at face value? Why didn't you test her? Why did you blindly affirm her? You allowed style to overpower substance. I know she's distracting, but why didn't you close your eyes and listen to the words that came out of her mouth? Their love turned into permissiveness. Thyatira was the exact opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus did not tolerate. Thyatira did tolerate. Ephesus did not tolerate bad doctrine or bad morals. Thyatira did tolerate bad doctrine and bad morals. Ephesus had no agape. Thyatira had sloppy agape. They had sloppy agape theology. We just love everybody. We just love Jezebel and her winsome teaching style. No, you love Jezebel because her teaching permits you to do what your sinful heart wants to do. Well, doctrine divides and love unites. Jesus didn't say that. Jezebel said that. Jesus criticizes them for their intolerance of false teaching. The church at Thyatira, they were good. They were good at hugging wolves. 
Jesus did not pat them on the back and applaud them for being affirming of Jezebel. He says, don't listen to her preaching, don't sing her songs, don't share her posts. Jezebel is claiming to have received a special revelation from Jesus. Well, she's receiving one from him now in front of everybody. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I want you to understand this. Jesus doesn't want to crush the modern Jezebel. He wants Jezebel to repent. He wants her to submit to his word, not distort it. In his grace, he gives her time to repent. Apparently, Jesus has warned modern Jezebel, but not through the church. The church hadn't been calling her out. Jesus gives her time to repent, and she refuses. She's given over to a false security, a deadly mistake. His patience is gone. Do not, do not presume on the patience of God. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works. Her physical health will suffer because she refuses to repent. Jesus says, I will throw her on a sickbed. You like to spend a lot of time in bed, Jezebel? Good. You're going to be there a lot. The punishment fits the crime. The word throw in the original language, ekbalo, is the same word used for Simon, Peter, and Andrew casting or throwing a net into the sea to catch fish. Jesus will throw her into a hospital bed. She will have some earthly judgment before the eternal judgment. Those who commit adultery with her, Jesus will throw into great tribulation. Financial trouble? Maybe. Sickness? Maybe. Mental distress? Maybe. Pushed out of a window, trampled by horses and eaten by dogs? Maybe. I don't know. Great tribulation is broad. Jesus continues his string of and clauses in verse 23. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. When Jesus says he will kill her children, nearly all scholars say he is not referring to biological children. He's referring to the products of her worship, those following her teaching. Spiritual children, not biological children. Jezebel has a team. She's not alone. Her Bible study is full. Peterson, Eugene Peterson in his colorful paraphrase, writes verse 23 this way. The bastard offspring of her idol whoring, I'll kill. It's very soft. <laughs> verse 23, Jesus puts all the churches on notice. My eyes see into the mind and the heart. 
I know what's going on in your chest and between your ears. His flaming eyes see clearly and his bronze feet crush entirely. He doesn't need to give her the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't need to investigate any further into her teaching. He knows it's evil. He tells this church, my feet became bloodied and bludgeoned to redeem you. And my feet became solid bronze to purify you. I will stomp the children of Jezebel. Jesus reveals himself as the intolerant Christ. Then Jesus reveals himself as the rewarding Christ. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. In the tolerant church, Jesus has a remnant. They are uncontaminated. They did not go to her Bible studies. They knew something was off with Jezebel. They stayed clear of her. Now, they didn't call it what Jesus called it, the deep things of Satan, but they kept her at a distance. Jesus' words to the faithful few are found in verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. This could actually be a summary of the entire book of Revelation. Hold fast until I come. Jesus promises rewards for those in the church who keep holding on to sound doctrine. What are the rewards? Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. <laughs> they will reign with Jesus Christ. This is a quotation from Psalm 2, 8, and 9. Those in the church who worked in the pottery guild, this had to awaken them. Shattering pottery. These church members will share in the dominance with Christ. Not the special. Not the few. All of them. With all the repentant, Jesus will share his messianic authority. The rule originally given to us in the garden will be restored. <laughs> Tolerant church. Why would you trade what Jesus offers for what Jezebel offers? Verse 28, Jesus says, I will give them the morning star. Huh. We're going to get a star. That's neat. Will it be named after us? Is it in the sky right now? No, this is apocalyptic symbolic literature. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the morning star. Christ himself is the reward. Jesus says to all the church members working in the guilds, you may not be able to stay in the same profession if you're going to glorify me. You may not have a massive 401k, but you will get me. 
I'm the reward. The intolerant Christ, the rewarding Christ. Now, four applications. Application number one. Are you, like the tolerant church, afraid to call out Jezebel's? Are you, like the tolerant church, afraid to call out Jezebel's? The church in Thyatira was as spineless with the second Jezebel as Ahab had been with the first. Are you, a, are you afraid of her response? Afraid of an awkward conversation? So you give her free reign to teach what she wants, when she wants, how she wants? Oh, but what? Oh, hmm. What if Jezebel leaves and takes her entire group with her? See ya. The church will be better off for it. You should not be asking. You, you should be asking, what if God stomps us with his brass feet because we tolerate her teaching? Not everyone will recognize Jezebel as Jezebel and they will leave with her. Church, love does not equal unconditional affirmation. There is never a call in the New Testament to be tolerant over something Jesus wasn't. Permissiveness will not bring the Lord's blessing. I don't care how much you talk about love or how much you talk about evangelism. This letter is 1,900 years old, but the human heart is the same. You need to pray for discernment to detect false teaching and boldness to oppose it. You need to pray for discernment to detect false teaching and boldness to oppose it. Jesus did not pat them on the back and applaud them for being affirming. Their general posture was non-confrontation. That can't be yours. Ideas have consequences. The most loving thing to do with this person is not to ignore their sin, but to warn them. Let's agree to be a church where Jezebel doesn't happen. And if it does happen, it doesn't happen for long. Let me ask you a question. Where in the world were the pastors? That's the second application. Where in the world were the pastors? The pastors of the church at Thyatira gave Jezebel an audience. They allowed her unrestricted influence. They should have stepped up and confronted her. A pastor who is not willing to confront false teaching in the church doesn't deserve to be a pastor in the church. A pastor who is okay with Jezebel holding authority in the church needs to have his authority ripped away. Now, I'm going to do something that may be weird for you. It's going to be weirder for me. <laughs> but I'm going to teach this application like I'm speaking to a room full of pastors. In a sense, I'm preaching to myself and, and our elders. But I'm also preaching to you. This will help you know what to expect of your pastors. And this will help you maybe one day to preach to your pastors. Pastor, part of your job is to protect the flock from wolves. Even if they wear lipstick and have a beautiful smile. 
you know, but Kyle, I may be misunderstood if I do that. Count on it. I may be accused of bullying if I do that. Probably. Well, I've known some pastors who abuse their authority, and I don't want to do that. I am with you. Me either. But it's not abusing authority when you're calling out sin, when you're calling out false teaching. You do this to protect the church. Can you imagine a father saying, well, I don't want to call my son out. I know he's playing with the toaster in the bathtub, but what if he thinks I'm harsh? (laughs) Spiritual death is more pressing than physical death. You should feel a greater pressing to deal with Jezebel in the church than a toaster in the tub. Well, I don't want to be blasted on Facebook and Twitter. Do you live for the approval of Twitter or the approval of God? Jesus has an intense concern for the purity of the church. Do you, pastor? Do you worship at the idol of cultural acceptance? You know what's been surprising to me as I've walked through the book of Revelation? (laughs) The theme of church discipline. I never anticipated running into it even once. But it's found repeatedly in these churches. Church discipline is like plumbing. No one comes over to your house to see the plumbing. But they all notice when it's messed up. Greg Wills pointed out something unique in his denomination of churches. He's a Southern Baptist, and he said among his denomination... Church discipline began to wane in the 1870s and rapidly decreased thereafter. And by the 1930s, it was extremely rare. Now, study this. Historians believe that in America, as they purified society, they less they felt the need to purify the church. Victor Masters points out why pastors struggle with this today. He says, sentimentality is the enemy of church discipline. It is the love of man divorced from the love of truth. I'd say it this way. It's sloppy agape. Now, let me me clarify. Pastors are not encouraged in the scriptures to be spiritual garbage inspectors or theological peeping tongs. That's just ridiculous. But they address sins that are habitual, serious, and those that lack repentance. When a moral sin, like in our text, or a theological sin, like in our text, is before you, you go to a brother or sister and call for repentance. If there is repentance, the discipline stops there. If there is no repentance, we follow the biblical pattern of taking multiple witnesses, but if there is no repentance, then you expel them from the membership. You excommunicate them. Not because you don't love them, but because you do love them. That's what the church at Thyatira refused to do with Jezebel. Pastor, what you think is a loving tolerance could be a poisonous tolerance. We must love what God loves. And hate what God hates. Of all the seven churches, the seven towns, this one, Thyatira, was the smallest. 
Don't think Jezebel is just in the big cities. Satan deploys Jezebels everywhere, including small, blue-collar towns. Application number three. It's easy to condemn yesterday's heresies. Who are the modern-day Jezebels, and what are their teachings? This is going to be fun, isn't it? You get the sense reading this letter to the church at Thyatira that doctrine really matters to Christ. It should also really matter to FFC. It's why the elders approve all curriculums taught in small groups and seminars. It's why we have a list of trusted resources on our website and trusted speakers as well. It's why we're slow to start small groups and seminars. It matters who is teaching. It matters what is being taught. Theology matters. Can you be discerning in your own day? The error will be subtle. Jezebel, the modern Jezebel, minimized holiness for God's people. Anyone who minimizes the expectation of your holiness, who says sexual choices are an area of Christian liberty, What they are doing is minimizing Jesus' eyes as a flame of fire and the bronzeness of his feet. There really are no new heresies, just old heresies dressed up in modern apparel. It's actually quite challenging to invent a new heresy. Christ's church has faced it all before. You don't need to know who the modern-day Jezebels are. You just need to know the truth and then you will be able to spot the error. Now, let me take a little sidebar. Old-timers called it a rabbit trail. It's more intelligent to say sidebar, so (laughs) let me take a sidebar. May the Lord give us wisdom not to accuse someone of being a Jezebel who differs from us on some secondary-tier issue like end times or a list of other things. We don't need friendship divorces over second-tier stuff. Calling groups Jezebels when they're not Jezebels. In fact, there's a group right now whom I love, and I I line up with theologically almost perfectly, politically almost perfectly, methodologically, what he said, almost (laughs) perfectly. Almost perfectly. And, and they're doing this right now. Calling people Jezebels who aren't Jezebels. And I think it's dangerous. Sidebar over. Did God throw this woman on a sick bed and eventually kill her because she refused to repent? We don't know. We don't have record of it. But you need to know God doesn't deal with all the Jezebels like he dealt with this Jezebel. Many false teachers have big platforms, big crowds, and they're not laid up in a bed. This is a specific promise to this Jezebel, not all Jezebels. But there is a specific promise to all Jezebels. You know Jezebels can be men and women, right? You've got that by now. There is a specific promise to all Jezebels. 
they will face the judgment of God on the last day. They are on a highway to the deepest canyons of hell. Application number four. In Revelation, the churches don't look great. <laughs> but that's not the point of Revelation. In Revelation, the churches don't look great. But that's not the point of Revelation. There are only two of these seven churches that I would ever want to be a member of. The other five? No, thank you. Churches are going to be messy until Jesus completely purifies them when he returns. Hear me, non-Christian. Churches are sometimes ugly, but Jesus is always beautiful. Get your eyes off the bride's imperfections and get your eyes on the bridegroom. He's wooing you, calling you to repent of your sin and find rest in his eyes of fire. <laughs> it's not your grit that gets you to heaven. It's Jesus' grit. The grit that made him endure the scourging and face the cross to purchase redemption for a people who had no hope otherwise. Church, because God would not tolerate your sin, Jesus faced the cross in your place. Let's stand together. Father, we have been fed. You have given us spiritual sustenance. You have given our souls what our souls desperately needed, which was a glimpse of your character. We leave full. We leave satisfied. We leave sustained. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.